Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be in our study today. Now, over the- and we're making a turn here into Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be in our study today. Now, over the holidays, we're making a turn here into Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be in our study today. Now, over the holidays, Lisa came to me and she said, hey, let's, let's get the girls and go look at some Christmas lights. And I thought that sounded like a good idea, so we started doing a little research and asking some friends, and, and uh, Lisa found a neighborhood in Poway. She said, we got to go all the way to Poway. I thought, surely there must be something closer, but I've got to tell you, it was worth the drive. If you're wondering where we went, I'll tell you, you can go there next year. We pulled up to this, really, a, a, a whole neighborhood in Poway, and it was like the merriest place on earth. It was I'm sure every electric meter was spinning, you know, with all the lights that were shining. And in this subdivision, every home was seemingly filled with joy. You'd walk down the street, and every, everybody was, was decorated and, and, and lights and all the rest. And, and a bunch of the homes, they'd have fire pits out front, and people just kind of hang out and talk, and it was so inviting. And a lot of the places as you were walking around, they'd have hot chocolate and cookies, and they'd just be giving it out. One home in particular, they were doing Christmas karaoke. They used their garage doors like a, as a screen and projected Christmas carols, and people got around and sing the songs. It was, it was great. It was worth the drive. We had a good time. I'm glad we went. Every home in that subdivision seemed to have joy, except for one. There was one. There's always one, isn't there? At least. And there was one home as we were walking around that uh, this guy... If, if he wasn't the Grinch, he and the Grinch were good friends, possibly relatives, okay? He, uh, you could tell he was not happy that their neighborhood was kind of the go-to place for the holiday lights and so forth. And he literally, he took yellow caution tape and wrapped it all around his property and you could kind of see him peering through the blinds, you know. And I'm not sure what he said. I envisioned him calling us all whippersnappers for some reason, okay? But he just, he, he had a crabby bent about him, you could tell. Everybody had joy except for one guy. And it seemed ironic to me that the more he tried to keep everybody out of his life, to protect what he had, it appeared he was getting crabbier by the minute. I'm sure the yellow tape didn't come out the first year he got crabby. And who knows what will be out there next year, attack dogs or something, I don't know. But there seems to be something in our lives that thinks, you know, the way to be really happy and fulfilled in life is to try to get all I can, and then as they say, can all you get and sit on the can. We want to be protective. We want to preserve what we have. We, we want to look out for old number one. And, and yet, if we're going to use Christmas as the analogy, I think Mr. Scrooge would let us know that that life leads to emptiness and loneliness and, and isolation. The great joy in life is found in knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, knowing the joy of the Lord. But there's also a great joy in sharing our joy with others. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we make our way into chapter 2. In chapter 1 in our study, the last few weeks, we talked about what joy is, how you could have joy, and now we're going to be talking about how we can share joy with others. Now, when this series started, you all were kind enough to give me a week to lay the foundation, and I need to do a little more foundational work today for the next leg in our journey. So if you're a, a married person, if you're a parent, if you work with people or for people, if you are a person, you need to be here the next three weeks, all right? And we're going to really develop a lot of the things that maybe I'll just make today by way of assertion. So give me a little liberty to set the stage, and then we'll come back and, and add to what it is that we'll be learning. And, and as we've seen, Philippians, it's just a personal letter. The Apostle Paul sat down, of course, God was working there, but he just wrote a personal letter, and for that reason, it's kind of hard to outline Philippians, to maybe find uh, uh, the, the narrative that we would think would be there. It was a personal letter, 
But from one end to the other, there was a theme, there was a mood, and it was joy. And in the text we're going to study today, we're going to see that Paul reveals to us that there really was a great example of joy, and it's the greatest example of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see Jesus in this passage today. And I hope that you'll be helped and encouraged. Now, folks, listen, there are weeks where, you know, I'll do my best to do double backflips, and, and then there are other weeks where I've got to just set some things out there. And so I hope you'll work as hard as I will this morning during the service, and I, I think it'll be worth it. And uh, so let's, let's uh, get into this study. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as uh, we look to this text today in Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading together in verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says this, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one, of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing, nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now I'm going to read on, but I love the way the Bible tells us of Jesus here that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and there's a reason for it. We often say Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you believe that today, say amen. I love to not only say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I like to say it this way. Jesus Christ is God the Son. Now, I've, I've got no problem with it the other way. I like to say it every which way it can be said. But I don't ever want us to lose focus of the reality that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He was God who became man without ceasing to be God. He came to us because there was no way we could get to Him. Jesus Christ is God the Son. It wasn't robbery to be equal with God because Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with God the Father. We believe in one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we're introduced to the ministry of Jesus Christ here in our lives in terms of our mind. We'll see how that relates to Jesus joy and we'll see how that relates even to humility and through unity jesus is the example verse seven but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross it's interesting the bible says even the death of the cross there was a stigma associated with death that way. I mean, a, a death sentence is a horrible thing. The pain of the cross was a horrible thing. Maybe similarly that we might associate a stigma with lethal injection or an electric chair of generations ago. Uh, even, the Bible says, even the death of the cross. And emphasis is being made. Verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. Now again, I'll read on, but it's interesting. In verse 8, we find that Jesus humbled himself. In verse 9, we find that in response to that, the Father exalts him. Verse 10 says this, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. This is a great, great text before us today. And again, Paul is setting the table because he's, he's got to say some things down the road in this chapter, and there's some things that have to be gleaned here. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's God the Son. Jesus Christ is Lord. Great truths in here. But there's a statement in the midst of verse 8. If you want to look there, I'd like to just emphasize for a moment the reality that the Bible says Jesus humbled himself. That's different than being humiliated, okay? He humbled himself. And I want us to think on that this morning. And I think we can be helped and encouraged along the way. Our Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it's timeless, that it, it has the answer to the needs we have this day. Bless each one here this morning. Be pleased with what you hear being taught, Lord, and with the effort we are using to, to receive this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. We've already established the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of God the Spirit. And Paul, at the time of this writing, was uh, under what we might call house arrest. He was in an imprisoned situation in the city of Rome. Being imprisoned in that time was a little different than our time. We know there were some needs that needed to be taken care of, and there was no government there standing in line to make sure that every need you had was, was cared for. And so the church in Philippi that Paul started, and he'd won many of these people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as they placed their faith in the Lord, uh, he loved these people. That church got together and they said, in essence, this. Hey, the Apostle Paul, who, who did such a great work here, who we love, he, he's in prison and he has some needs. And, and someone came up with the idea in the church, what we need to do is take an offering. Everybody can bring some money. We'll collect all the money. And that offering that we receive, we'll send it to Paul. So when he's in Rome in this imprisoned situation, he'll have the finances he needs to take care of the various needs that come into his life. That was a very generous gesture. I think it was a gesture we might say that's a good thing for them to have done and, and an appropriate thing to care for this one who was in prison, not for committing a crime, but for essentially teaching and preaching the gospel message. And so the church received an offering and they appointed someone in the church to take the offering to Paul. The man they appointed was a man by the name of Epaphroditus. How many of you think Epaphroditus was a trusted man in that church, okay? So they all come in, they bring their money, and they give it to him. And they say, hey, Epaphroditus, take this offering to Paul. And so off he goes, he travels, and, and Epaphroditus comes. And imagine now Epaphroditus coming to Paul and, and, and giving him the offering. And Paul's like, what's this? And Epaphroditus says, man, we love you, Paul. And you're going through a hard time, and we're with you in this, and we just wanted to bring an offering to help you and minister to you. And Paul would have looked at that, I'm sure, and, and uh, he would have said, you shouldn't have, but boy, am I glad you did. Right? That's what he would have said, and he would have uh, been grateful for it. In fact, in many ways, the book of Philippians is just a thank you note. It's Paul writing to them, and, and Paul sharing with them how grateful for he, he is for what they had done. But imagine when Paul saw Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus would not have set the offering down before Paul turned around and quietly walked away. No, he would have been glad to have seen Paul. And Paul probably would have been even more glad to see Epaphroditus. And I'm sure that they would have said, how are you doing? Fine, how are you doing? And eventually the conversation would have turned back to the church in Philippi because they were on Paul's heart. And Paul got a glowing report in many ways. 
Epaphroditus was able to share with Paul, there's a lot of good things going on there. There are people being saved, people are growing in the Lord, and, and, and Paul, we want you to know your labor here wasn't in vain in the Lord, it's being used, the church is moving forward, and that would have been, I mean, that would have been medicine for Paul. He would have been so thrilled to know what God was doing there. But apparently somewhere along the line, Epaphroditus had to share that everything in that church wasn't going along exactly perfect. We're beginning in chapter 2. When we make our way into chapter 3, Epaphroditus apparently had to let Paul know there were some false teachers who'd come into the church. And they were leading some folks astray. When we get to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to find, and apparently Epaphroditus had, had, had told Paul if he indeed was the one who, who was taking that offering, I, I believe uh, we, we understand that. He, he's going to find out later there were a couple people in the church who were arguing, and so division had come, and people were kind of picking sides. And, and I think Paul being a leader... He would have been so happy to hear the good news, but I would imagine when he laid his head down on his pillow that night, it was probably the bad news that was on his mind. Sometimes we'll have a day and everything will go right, but someone's mean to us and, or unkind to us. And for whatever reason, those, those moments are the ones that they seem to linger. Joy seems to be fleeting at times and, and a hurt spirit. It, it, it's, it's something that seems to last a little bit longer. So Paul hears the news of some of the difficulties he gave a great introduction in chapter 1, but he's turning the corner in chapter 2 now to begin teaching this church and to begin addressing some of the problems that he had been aware of. And, and so as he comes to this church in this time with the needs that they had in their lives and in their midst, he deals with the topic of unity. Now, I want to be crystal clear as we get started here. Again, introduction, foundation, identifying terms. I want to be crystal clear today that when I speak of unity, I am not speaking of uniformity. Religion, churches, Christians, we're world famous for being condemning, judgmental people. And unfortunately, I, I think the, the cliche, the way that, that some have become known is, is very warranted because what we do is we establish a pattern that kind of is related to Scripture, but we put our own spin on it and we get our own code, our own list, our own do's and don'ts, our own rules. And what we call unity really is uniformity because we tell everybody else, if you don't do it just the way I do it, you're no good or worse. You've got to be just exactly like me. That's not the unity of the New Testament. That's the uniformity of, of really corrupt religion. When we're talking of unity, we're talking about looking to the Bible and seeing Jesus Christ. And finding our agreement, not with my way or your way, but finding our agreement with His way. You see, unity comes through lives that look like Jesus. Unity comes through humble lives. And so for that reason, Paul begins in chapter 2 and verse 1, he he says this, he said, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any bowels and, and mercies. Now, we read that and we're thinking, if, if, if. Basically, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, because everything I told you in chapter 1 is true, let me tell you where that will lead us in our lives today. The word if can be conditional. I could say to you, if you do this, I will do that. There's a condition. That was not the sense at all in the language of the New Testament that Paul was using the word if. Basically, we could say he was saying, since this is true, since Jesus is the Lord and he does bring a comfort and he does work in our lives, since all that I told you in chapter 1 is accurate, he was saying, let's get to work in chapter 2. We've got some things we need to understand, and you all need a unity to come in to your midst. And I want our church to know today this. A lack of unity 
It's not a physical problem. It is not a material problem. It is a spiritual problem. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to know what we're going to cover when it comes to how to share our joy with others, how to be an influence, how to be a good leader. What we're going to cover, if it comes from God's word, it's not a suggestion. It's God's command to Christians. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, you can can take this and you can learn from it. Lord willing, these truths will draw you to Jesus Christ, but, but you can evaluate these as you see them on their merits. And I promise you, as you apply God's word, it'll make a difference in your life. But, but if you're a Christian today, I want you to know what we're covering, we really need to get a hold of. Because God expects us to live lives that are, are lives that, that rally around the cause of Jesus Christ, that bring others to him. You see, the answer to a lack of unity, it's not rules or pressure or threats or manipulation. It's found in Christians seeking to live like Jesus and finding our unity in him. And, and unity is always founded upon a Christ-like Humility. And I hope to share that with you as we get into our study. Get your notes out real quick. Longer introduction than normal, but we're going to get into the heart of it. As, as we get into this, this chapter today, I want us to begin by saying, first of all, the enemy of unity. The enemy of unity. Now, as Paul began talking in verse 1, he said, in essence, since everything I've told you to this point is true, let me tell you where it goes. And with that as the foundation and the backdrop, here's what Paul says to them as he leads them on. He said, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He said, listen, because what we are studying is true, what I am teaching or writing, Paul could say, is true. Here's what I want you to do. Be like-minded. Uh, you need to have the same love. Be of one accord, of, of one mind. Now, of course, their unity was to be found in living like Jesus. But before that could happen, Paul says, let me help you by sharing with you there is an enemy to this unity. And so as Paul goes on, he develops this and he says it this way. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now, if you underline or circle or highlight or put stars next to words in your Bible, vainglory is a word we need to think about. Because Paul said, let nothing be done. This morning, say with me, let nothing be done. Ready, begin. Let nothing be done. Nothing means nada, nothing, all right? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves this was a thought that paul said you all have to get a hold of you see the enemy of unity is pride it's the life that lives for vainglory vain means empty worthless it has no value at all and paul said you can in your life live for a glory but it's an empty glory don't do anything for vainglory there's no glory more empty than a self-centered glory in fact paul speaks here in this verse of strife and strife is the byproduct of pride we've seen solomon told us in proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10 only by pride cometh contention only by pride cometh contention but with the well-advised is wisdom and we are coming to understand that if there's contention in our lives pride is at the root of it and if, if you're married today how many of you are married this morning all right good let me help you with something if there's conflict in your marriage it's not because the toilet paper comes over the top of the roll or under the bottom all right It's not because the toothpaste is squeezed from the bottom or the middle of the tube. It's not because clothes fall short of the hamper. If there's conflict in our marriages, it's because of pride. It's because somewhere along the way, one or two people have decided it must be done my way. Or there will be a price to pay. That's kind of how that works. 
applying the next verse, verse 4, Paul helps us know how to defeat the enemy. Now, as we look down to verse 4, Paul says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Listen, do you want to leave here today with an improved marriage? Do you want to leave here today having become a better parent? Let me tell you how to do it. Look not every man on his own things. Don't live for that vainglory. Don't be the guy that lives looking out for old number one. Don't be the crabby old guy that wraps yellow caution tape around your house because you're mad at all your neighbors for spreading Christmas cheer, all right? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And the key word in that verse is others. Now, this this verse is in no way calling us out to live our lives as a human doormat, nor is it calling us to live lives as busybodies, It does, however, call us to look at others and to seek to serve them for Jesus' sake. In fact, Paul later in Philippians 2 and verse 21 says this. He said, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, let me help you. There's a spirit in our day and age, and it's a spirit of seeking for their own, a vainglory. And he said, it's very different than the spirit that should be present in the hearts and lives of Christians. A spirit that says, how can I help? others and be a blessing to others how can i humbly enter into someone's life and encourage them the key word is others that's the heart of of a life that shares joy they're others minded one person wrote this lord help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when i kneel to pray my prayer shall be for others others lord Yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. You see, when we're others-minded, when we're selfless, when we're not living for vainglory, we then begin to resemble Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example. And this does not come naturally. Because there's an enemy in in all of us that fights against us. It's, It's the enemy of pride. I had no idea how blessed I would be when the Lord called our family to this area in starting a church. I I didn't really know how blessed I'd be to be able to have a a church that's so close to uh, Camp Pendleton. I I didn't really know what that meant. That had no consideration in in, in us coming. I kind of figured it out after we got here. Man, there's a lot of military people, a lot of veterans. And I'm grateful in our church. We've got a good group of uh, military guys and, and a lot of veterans. And I'm grateful for those who've served. I've had an opportunity to talk to those who served in, in Vietnam. I've heard some amazing stories and different views and opinions. Regardless of different stances on various areas of contention, people have, have said that in general it appeared that at least from a leadership standpoint, we, we had a really hard time identifying and dealing with the enemy. In fact, the statement was made to me that at times it was even difficult to discern who the enemy was, who the combatants were. You see, that war was so very different than like Revolutionary War days where you pretty much stand in line and, okay, you shoot, now I shoot. And, you know, it was very different even than, than the, the muck and mire of World War II trench warfare where you could identify another guy even by the shape of his helmet, by the type of his uniform. And, and then in that environment, it was so incredibly different. And it was exceedingly difficult even to identify the enemy. And then the enemy had different tactics than we'd seen in previous wars. It was more of... I'm using this term, this maybe isn't the right military term, but you know what I mean. More of like a guerrilla warfare type of approach. It was just, it was just different than, than, than what our training had been, had been prepared for. I, I want to say today, there's an enemy inside of me. Its name is pride. 
it's tough at times to identify, and it uses tactics that are just really random. It's more guerrilla-like in its approach. It wages a war in my life every day of my life to usurp the authority that only belongs to God. And this enemy of pride that lives within me, guess what? It lives within you. And it wants to bring us to the place where we're not living for God. We're living for self. We see the enemy of unity. But as the Bible goes on, we're going to see also in this text the pathway to unity. It's good to identify the enemy, but how do we see a victory? Paul was writing to this church family, and within that context, he tells us there's something we can, we can enjoy in life, we can possess in life, but it will only come by way of, of, of unity and humility. It's, it's more than a mindset. Paul was not telling people to try out for a time the power of positive thinking. It was literally a mind that people were to have. In fact, as Paul was writing, he develops this. He says it this way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, this is how it works. You need to have the mind of Jesus Christ at work in your life. You need to think like Jesus. You need to approach life as Jesus did, following his example. And in verse 8, we find the greatest example from God the Son, Jesus Christ, we can imagine. The Bible tells us that he humbled himself. God the Son made a willful decision to humble himself, to empty himself. In fact, of this passage, theologians, those who have studied the life of Jesus Christ, they often refer to this passage in the Bible as as the kenosis passage. The word kenosis means to empty. And they're referring to the fact that Jesus Christ, God the Son, He became man without ceasing to be God. He voluntarily laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He still was God. He still had all power. But He voluntarily took upon Himself the form of a man and the form of a servant. And, and He chose to live in that way. Humility is kind of a tough topic to discuss. Um... Because I suppose the moment you think you are humble, so much so you can teach everybody else how to be humble, you probably are no longer humble, okay? <laughs> but I think we're always safe in looking at the life of Jesus Christ and saying, he got it right. Let's try to be more like him. As many have said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less and I think world, the world hears the word humility and they think that means poor self-esteem or something of this nature. And, and No, hu humility is really just thinking of yourself less and thinking of the needs of others. It's having the mind of, of a servant as Jesus Christ had. I want you to listen to what Jesus did for us. The Bible here in this text makes it very clear that Jesus made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And it goes on to say, and he became obedient unto death, even the death, the dreaded, horrible death of the cross. And friends, when we are told to let this mind be in us, again, we're not talking literally about, about the actual brain. We're talking about the things that Jesus did, the, the thoughts that Jesus had that led to the action. We're talking about his approach. Jesus Christ is the picture of selfless living. Why did God become man without ceasing to be God? Why did he voluntarily lay, lay aside the prerogatives of deity? Why did he willfully let corrupt human beings nail his body to the cross? when he could have at any moment called 10,000 angels to come down and annihilate every last one of them. Let me tell you why Jesus gave all the way through his life and why he gave his life for you and for me so that we could be unified through faith 
with him. In Galatians 1 and verse 4, the Bible says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Jesus gave for us. He served us. Years ago, I was working for a company, an aerospace company, and they hired a new president. And we got word that there had been a change in leadership, and that's always a nervous time in a job, you know, new leaders coming in. And, and we heard that he had been in, uh, vice president with the Ryder Corporation, really big company, a lot of divisions and so forth. And, and to us, at least, that was kind of a big deal. This guy was kind of a big deal. And I remember Gene Crossford had a great career, and uh, he was experienced, and uh, I, I think he's probably maybe in his early 60s when he came to work at our company. And a lot of times when there's turnover in a company, you just never know. They're looking at bottom line things. They've already been studying things. And your fear is they're going to come in and maybe clean house or do away with this. Or you just, you never, you never know. And when I heard that on Gene Crosser's first day in, in our company, he wanted to meet with me. I was a little nervous about that. Because, you know, normally they, they, they come in with the bad news first. They don't know anybody yet. It's easier to, thank you. We don't need you anymore. And uh, I know how those meetings go. I would go in Gene's office, and he'd sit behind the big desk in a chair that's two inches higher than mine looking down at me. And I, I, I know how the routine goes. And so I thought, well, he's going to want to pull me in his office, and who knows what he's going to say. But, but, but then I heard he wanted to meet in my office. Which didn't make great sense at all because my office wasn't set up for meetings. We had to get a metal folding chair. I mean, he kind of gave up that, that posture of intimidating authority behind the big desk. And he came into my office. And I'll never forget how Gene Crosser treated me that day. He said, Steve, I've been brought here to help this company do better. And if this company's going to do better, you're going to have to do better. You're going to have to be a success. He said, so I really see in a large part my role here is to help you succeed. And if you succeed, I'll look really good in the process. So I just want you to know that I'm for you. And he went into some things he'd, he'd done before he arrived and said, I'm glad you're here and I'm going to help you in every way I can. What a leader. You think that man ha had a better ally on our team than I was of him? I mean, what a way to go about it. He said, I'm here to serve you. He was saying, I'm not here to make a name for myself. I want to help you. Now, as we think of the name of Jesus Christ, we know it's the greatest name in the history of the world. <laughs> we know that. Uh, the Bible says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The Bible says Jesus humbled himself. He served. He sacrificed for us. He provided the means whereby we could receive the name of Christian. And he did so uh, in a way that allowed the Father then to exalt him and lift him up. I, I want you to know there is a pathway to unity. And it's learning of Jesus Christ and living that Christ life. Being willing to, to serve but as we continue looking here, and this will be the last thought that, that we'll see in this passage, I want us to see the result of unity. The result of unity. I really love where this study ends because it points us not only to the motivation of it all, but to the natural byproduct of a unified body. 
And, and I want us to listen again to Paul's closing words. I want us to listen carefully to what it is that Paul had to say here as he closed out this section. He said that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's the statement. To the glory of God the Father. Now much could be said about that verse. But the end game of Christ humbling Himself was this. The glory of the Father. The reason He humbled Himself was for the glory of the Father. If we humble ourselves so that we look good and receive accolades, it's not being done for the Lord. I want you to understand that the result of unity, when people come together, reflecting Christ's likeness, living in a spirit of, of humility, uh, surrounding themselves around the purposes and principles of Scripture, we will find that what will happen is our families, our lives, our church will give glory to the Father. Glory. Later, Paul was writing to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He uh, was, was careful to help us understand this. He said, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, again, listen this morning. Uh, I want you to know this letter was written to a church. It was presumed that the people who were part of that church were believers. These principles are for believers. If you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here today. But for those that happen to be, let me just tighten down a little bit. The Bible says to Christians, you're bought with a price. Let me remind you what the price was that purchased our salvation. It was the shed blood of God, the son, Jesus Christ on the cross, even the cross. We're bought with a price. Therefore, on the basis of that reality, glorify God. By the way, it belongs to God, your life. All that you have, all that you are, all that you hope to possess or become, it's God's. The end game in life is to do it in such a way that God gets the glory from it all. The person who humbles themselves before the Lord and others can expect hardships and difficulties. There's no, no doubt, but it leads to God's glory. P Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, he, he made this familiar statement. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the hand, uh, mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble, and he'll exalt. Jesus humbled himself, and the Father exalted him. That's how it works. Joseph, for 13 long years, suffered every kind of injustice a man could suffer. What he went through was nearly unspeakable. But after 13 humbling years, God exalted him. And he became really the second most powerful man in all the world, second only to Pharaoh of Egypt. God used him in a remarkable way. David was anointed to be the king of Israel as a teenage boy. He went through unspeakable hardships and difficulties, literally, literally living on the run for his life, hiding out in caves. And, and yet, at the end of his life, he could look back and see a 40-year stretch of time where God used him to lead the nation of Israel, humbled, then exalted. You see, any light that comes through our lives is to serve as a spotlight on the one who made it all possible. And if any good thing happens to take place in us and through us, it's only because of a good God who made it possible. That's why Jesus Christ was so emphatic when he said in Matthew 5, verse 16, this. He said, let your light so shine before men. And I love the way he, he develops this. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, make sure the right things are coming out of your life so that people will take note of them and when they see those Things in your life, the light shining out, it will give glory 
to the Father. That's the end game in life, is living in a way that pleases the Lord and honors Him. Now, I'd like to have a fireside chat with our church family. Months ago, when the Lord put this series on my mind and my heart, I began to share it with some different ones in our church and seek counsel. And I remember gathering our, our staff team together and kind of sharing and telling them what I wanted to do. And I wanted to involve the small groups. And, and even the idea came up in a meeting long ago, of like the song that uh, the team wrote that we learned today. And, and I said, I really believe our church family needs to go through the book of Philippians. Because if what I read is correct, there's never been a more pessimistic time in our country, in our entire lifetimes, than the time in which we're living. Now, we could talk about the reasons for that, but I'm frankly, I'm not as interested in finding blame as finding solutions. And I really believe with all my heart that none of us could go wrong finding more of the joy of the Lord. I thought this is a topic that people need right now, today. They need this. And we need to see this isn't some touchy-feely, you know, I've got the joy, joy, joy. And I mean, th- th- there's meat in here. And believe me, when we, when we move on in this study, you're going to find there, there's some rich, deep truths that will compel us to live changed lives by God's power and for His glory. But I knew that our church was a church filled with people that needed the joy of the Lord. But there was another reason. We live in the midst of people who need the joy of the Lord. Now, Coastline, please hear me. The the largest reason I wanted to lead our church through this study was because we have a lot to do. There are people all around us within close proximity even to this building who maybe have never one time in their entire lives had a Christian who had the compassion of Christ in their lives that would lead them to explain the gospel to them clearly and carefully so that they could understand it. We live in a, in a place, I, I thank God for this area, I love it, I love the ocean, but, but we live in an area that's absolutely inundated with people who not only are not Christ followers, many of them ha- have, have a false assumption of Christ. They hold Jesus with this and what this community needs is a church on this hilltop that would would be shining its light would be filled with joy so we can see those that are lost come to know jesus as their savior i pray that we see believers who are saved follow the lord in believers baptism and those who've been saved and baptized would be a part of one-on-one discipleship so they can know what it is truly to do life as a follower of jesus christ we've got a lot to do And if we don't have unity that comes from a heart of humility, the likes of which we find in Jesus Christ, we'll be kind of a religious social club that gets together and sings a song and feels good about punching our card for our weekly visit. But we won't make the difference that needs to be made. I'm taking us through the book of Philippians Because we have a lot to do. And if we don't have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ and a commitment to Jesus Christ, we're frankly just kind of passing the time. The greatest manual, I suppose, ever written on the local church is the New Testament book of Acts. It's in Acts that we see the church established, empowered by the Spirit of God. 
Uh, it's in Acts chapter 13. We see missionaries sent out for the first time. I mean, the way, the way we do church, it, it, it by and large goes back. The principles picked up in the book of Acts. I noticed the principle while reading through Acts not too long ago that before every great miracle in that book of the Bible, and I challenge you to read it and see it for yourself, before every great work of God, God the Spirit chose to record for us in the book of Acts that the people were unified. There wasn't a uniformity, but they were unified. They had one mind, one spirit. They shared an objective. Every time God did something special, there was a group of people that came together and basically said this, hey, this isn't about us, it's about Him. It's about His glory. So let's work together with the mind of Christ, with the heart of Christ. Let's be humble. Let's come together. Let's condescend. Let's make sure that we, we come to the point where we can do what we do for the glory of God. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, there's a man who was kind of notorious for doing what he did for his own glory. His name was Herod the Great. How do you like that? Herod the Great. That man lived for vain glory. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 23, the Bible says, Immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he had not given God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and he gave up the ghost. Pretty poor epitaph on a life, isn't it? When Lisa and I were over there, we saw the very place that Herod the Great was seated when he perished. And the primary attribute of that man's life is... You know, he just wouldn't give God the glory. Now, I think I could talk a long time to help you come to the place where you agree with this premise, but I think, actually, I think just about everybody in here today does. We understand that. I began to think what would be a good example to help us really see how to put feet to what, what we're beginning to study in this chapter. And I think the greatest example I could think of was one that we've shared together. I remember when our church got started, Lisa and I came here, and we didn't know anybody. We didn't have anything. And uh, by God's grace, the church got started and began to grow. We literally celebrated our church anniversary every week. I, I mean, I, I remember when we celebrated the 100th anniversary of Coastline Baptist Church. People were like, 100 years? No, 100 weeks, man, 100 weeks. I remember when our church turned 76 weeks, we, we had a church meeting. We held it in the... I think it's the best western down there by Oceanside Boulevard and the Five, and they had a little conference room out front. And, and basically, the meeting was this. It was, hey, guys, God's starting to do something. We're seeing people saved, and this church is just it's starting to grow. And what our future's going to look like, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe we're going to have one. And, and so I think what we should probably do is take an offering so that we can have this future develop. We were looking at our first building, which is the building right next door. That was our first building. And um, we needed a $50,000 offering that night as a down payment. To we already had some money saved up. That was what was needed. And, I mean, it might as well have been a billion dollars. At that time, it's a huge number now, but, I mean, at that time, it was like, wow, that's the biggest number in the world. And we came together that night, and, and this church family gave over $50,000 that evening to basically say we want to be unified in this they were humble and, and God allowed that to begin a great work I could tell a similar story about when we got this property and when we had to build the property out 
And it is humble when we come together like that because we're kind of agreeing at times on a plan or even sometimes on saying we're not exactly sure how it's all going to turn out, but we better start getting ready. And it is selfless. Look, when, when, when people want to know how much money someone has, they want to know what's their worth. We have so much personal value connected to an account balance. And when somebody voluntarily, willingly, of their own volition, divest of some of their worth to cooperate with other believers, to help have a more preferable future, I really think it's the spirit of what we're talking about. And I want our church family to know, many of you do, I've been meeting with small groups and sending out letters. Uh, on March 2nd, we're having an event like that. We're coming together as a church family, and we're saying, we've got a future. God's working, and we think He's going to continue working. And, and we want to be preparing today for when the future comes. I cannot hold up blueprints. I cannot hold up, hold up a picture of a building. Um, but I can say with the same spirit that I, that I said all those years ago when we were meeting in a little community center in our living room most of the time, and, and I can say with the same spirit that was said before we got in this property, things are happening, souls are being saved. This is not a perfect church because I'm the pastor, if for no other reason. But there's something happening here, and I believe God would be honored by more of it rather than less. And the day's coming when he's got something for us. And I hope that we'll be unified and just only do what he'd have us to do. Never do more than God would have you to do. Never do less than what God would have you to do. Just have a heart of humility and honesty before him and say, Christ, could I have your mind to think the thought that you'd have for me in this situation? This, this approach of humility, it changes everything. I'm telling you, you'll have a better marriage tomorrow, husband, wife, if you have a humble mindset that's not living for vainglory, but looking out for the needs of others. Hey, can I help you with that? Can I serve you here? You'll be a better parent tomorrow if you serve your children in that way. Say, no, they're, they're not to be served by me. Oh, there are a lot of different ways to serve. But if you had a, a heart that said, you know, I just want to minister to them and love them. I think you could change the whole atmosphere of your workplace if you showed up as a humble person who had the mind of Christ, who wasn't living for vainglory, who put aside that kind of a reputation and said, you know, I just, I want to be a help in every way I can in this place. I, th I think God could use you to change a whole office. Because there's joy in humility. And there's joy sharing in the lives of the humble. Our Father, thank you today for the opportunity just to kind of set this.